Welcome to Health Hackers. Thank you for being here. It is a pleasure to have you and it is also a pleasure to thank the sponsors of this episode. Glycanage, a science-based lab test you can take at home that estimates your biological age or what some may call your true age. Regular viewers, you might recognize the name Glycanage after my video review of my experience last summer. And by the way, you can still get 15% off your own home test kit using the code HEALTHHACKERS at the Glycanage checkout. Since making my review video, the company and I stayed in touch, and now I'm thrilled to be able to call Glycanage a current sponsor of Health Hackers. Head to glycanage.com to find out more about their test kits. And if you missed my review of Glycanage, the link to the video is in the summary text that goes with this episode. Thank you, Glycanage, for supporting Health Hackers. Now, over to the latest guest interview. Welcome to Health Hackers episode 61 and my last special guest interview before I begin maternity leave. So what better way to bow out and prepare for impending motherhood than by talking to a supreme expert on what lies ahead. I am thrilled to be joined by Leslie Schrock, author of Bumpin', The Modern Guide to Pregnancy. This book has been described as the new pregnancy bible and came about because of Leslie's feelings of helplessness following a number of complicated pregnancies and losses. The book was written in real time while Leslie was pregnant with her son, TJ, and since then she's had another baby, Dylan, who is now three months old. As well as being a mother of two, Leslie is an entrepreneur and investor who's spent more than a decade working at the intersection of health and technology. She was named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business, and this year, Bumpin was listed in the top 10 best pregnancy books of 2021 by VeryWellFamily.com. There is so much I could talk to Leslie about today. The book covers conception all the way to postpartum, but... We're going to hone in on one particularly key event that I'd say pregnant women spend a lot of time thinking about. The big moment, the showdown, the actual birth. In this episode, I'll be getting Leslie's insights on preparing for the big event. So birth plans, pain relief, when to go to hospital, handling the unpredictable, working with a doula and more. Before we begin, a quick note to new viewers and listeners, anything you hear or see on Health Hackers should not be considered personal or medical advice. You know the score, always talk to your health provider about your concerns. Leslie, welcome to Health Hackers. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations. It's such a, it is such a crazy journey. I hope you're doing and feeling very, very well. Thank you. Well, it's great to be able to speak to you. And given that we're going to be talking about preparing for the big event, can we start at the end of the second trimester, the period in the book you recommend as a good time to start to prepare for labor or a C-section. And many of us have heard of a birth plan, making a birth plan, but you say the word plan is a dangerous one. Tell us why. Because the word plan uh, indicates that you have ultimate control over this process, which uh, as someone who has been pregnant five times and who has given birth twice, <laughs> I can tell you that even if you have a textbook boring, boring birth, um, which hopefully you will, 
something inevitably will not go the way that you expect. And I think one of the things that we have really done to women that had become a great disservice is telling them that, you know, you can just will your way through this and, you know, compel your baby to do the thing that you want it to do. Whether, you know, you have a breech presentation, whether you really want to give birth, you know, at home and you're not a good candidate for that. There are so many things. So, you know, to me, the word that I like people to use are birth preferences, because I don't want to give the impression that not preparing for birth is what I endorse. You should absolutely prepare for birth in all of the ways that feel good and right to you. There is no one way to do it. There is no one right way to prepare. And there is no one set of birth preferences that is really universal to everybody. So what I suggest people do is do their research, look into different methods. I outlined a lot of the really popular, you know, hypnobirthing, Lamaze, like there's a, there are a million. You can just meditate. You can bounce up and down on a ball. You can do yoga. You can do all kinds of things. You can, hydrotherapy was a favorite of mine. Um, but really just maintaining um, the idea in the back of your head that, and it's good training for parenting, that you are not in full control of what happens during birth. So on this birth preferences list, um, what kind of, what, what would you have on there typically? I know everybody's different. And can someone just write it on a bit of paper and turn up at their hospital with it? Or is there a communication process that you should go through with your doctor when talking about birth preferences ahead of time? Yes. Yeah, so I suggest in general, whoever your provider is, whether it's a midwife or an OB, um, is to go talk to them in the third trimester, preferably kind of at the beginning. You know, 32 weeks is, uh, is an appointment time that, you know, a lot of the time women, you know, most women end up going to an appointment around 32 weeks. That's a great time to do it. You can wait a little longer if you like. Um, but really what you want to do is use that appointment to calibrate your expectations because there might be things that you want during birth that either the facility or your provider cannot provide. So, you know, for example, if you really want to, you know, like the yoga ball stuff, many, many, many hospitals and birth centers have those, but not all do. Um, same thing with hydrotherapy, you know, taking a shower, taking a bath in the early stages of labor, especially can really relax you, um, you know, so can like aromatherapy, right? There have been interesting studies done that show the power of smell can be really helpful to women as labor progresses, but not all hospitals allow you to bring your own diffuser. Music, same thing. So these are some of the more aesthetic things. Um, you can indicate your light preferences. Do you want a dark room? Do you want a bright room? Do you want you know, like we should all probably try not to be JLo when it comes to, you know, the kinds of stuff that we, we want. Um, but, you know, so there's, there's kind of the, the stuff that you personally really want to provide comfort to help you think through and, you know, process it as it's happening, things that make you comfortable and relaxed. But there's also the other side, which is the medical preferences. So both for you as well as your baby. So, you know, what kind of, um, what do you want to happen right after birth with your baby? Delayed cord clamping is an option. There are some different, um, you know, like depending upon where you give birth, protocols are different. Um, but then there's also you. So do you want an epidural? Do you not want an epidural? Do you not know if you want an epidural? Actually, I find most people kind of just don't know if they do or not. 
Um, <clears throat> you know, there, there are pros and cons to epidurals. Um, I outline most of them in, in the book. There's, we have a lot of data about them. I will say that it, I think a lot of the time it is made out to be this very kind of like taking the easy way out or something. And I'm here to tell you after having been in unmedicated back labor for 12 hours um, and then getting an epidural because I had to, and I ended up with two C-sections um, because I have a very crappy uterus as it turns out. So, um, you know, but I don't see it as taking the easy way out. And I think for a lot of people, it's absolutely the right decision. When you say 12 hours of back labor, what is back labor? <laughs> so in my case, my son, my first son, um, on his final turn on the way out, got stuck. So he was stuck in my pelvis. So his back was facing the wrong way, which basically means that, and they call it back labor, which it's pretty painful. So, and it's just because the baby is not in position. Um, and in my case, just as a, you know, speaking of birth preferences, you know, I obviously like I went into it with all of this knowledge, with all of this expertise. I had talked to a million people because I was writing my book. I had practiced. I had done all of the things. I really wanted a vaginal birth. I did everything possible. I was in labor for 65 hours. I did everything. And we both would have died had I not had a C-section. He was stuck. So I think that that is also something I feel really strongly about personally is that, you know, even for me, I tried to will my way through it. And in the end, I just, I had to make the decision and I had to, you know, come to peace with it, that that was going to be the outcome, but we're both healthy and I just feel grateful for that. And that's all that matters. And I do want to come on to talking a little bit later about holding it together when things don't go to plan or to preference. But on that birth preferences list, and you've mentioned epidurals, but can we talk more about pain relief? Because, um, and let's say for example, we're talking about a hospital setting, so a hospital birth. What do mums-to-be need to know about the kinds of pain relief options they have ahead of time? And should they be asking their doctors anything specific before the day they give birth? Absolutely. So I think that this is a great conversation to have with your midwife or OB or your doula, which um, I want to kind of take a moment and plug doulas. They're incredible. Um, you can think of a doctor or a midwife um, as someone who takes care of you from the waist down. That's really kind of their job. Doulas take care of you from the waist up. They take care of your mind. They can help you with all kinds of um, you know, different pain management solutions. So I'm going to answer your question kind of two different ways. You know, I think the one of the things that doulas can do that are really powerful is they can teach you non-medical um, pain relief options. They can do this in a few different ways. One actually is something that can um, involve your partner, which is massage. So, you know, we had a doula team for our birth, for example, um, she came over to the house before, uh, before the big day, big day came and taught my husband how to give a really great massage using like scarves and, you know, this little roller ball. And then also, um, one of my personal favorites, you know, she taught me uh, like the gate control, the gate theory of pain management. Um, you know, basically I had this little plastic cone that um, I squeezed during like the worst of my contractions and it really did help. So, um, so, you know, again, like you kind of have two different ways you can look at this. There are the medical options, which epidurals, narcotics, um, you know, you can use nitrous, which I did. 
I didn't find it to be terribly effective personally, but some people really, really like it. It's not available everywhere, which is another reason you should absolutely speak to your provider about what your options are. Um, but then there are all of these great, you know, hydrotherapy, aromatherapy, you can, you know, squeeze an item, you can get massage. The TENS machine was another one that um, is not terribly popular in the US, which is kind of surprising considering, um, but it's very cool. It uses these little electrodes. You put them at, you know, specific spots. You obviously can't use this if you're in the bathtub. Um, but it kind of stimulates a response in your back and it can be really, really great distraction. So I think it's, um, you know, pain management is deeply personal. A, a lot of people have, everyone has kind of a different way that they deal with pain. And I think it's really important to just have some time with yourself to think about how you best manage pain, what feels good for you. If you have a partner, how can they get involved and coach you and be part of that process? And then also if a doula is something that you want to look into, um, you know, how would you like that person to be part of it? Because if you are giving birth in a hospital, which most people do in the US, um, you will not have an OB with you every single moment of that experience. Um, you will not have a labor and delivery nurse with you every single moment of that experience. You will be by yourself for big parts of that because it takes a long time, especially the first time around. So I want to cover more about the doulas, but just before we do, can I just go back over a couple of things that you said? The comb technique, you were squeezing a comb, is, is that because you were distracting yourself with counter pain? Yes, it was. Yes. It's okay. the, the, yes, the gate theory of, of pain. It's really great. It's a great distraction. And it was just one of those little black, like barber's combs that go in the green liquid that's kind of weird and sketchy. Like it, it absolutely worked for me. I've actually bequeathed that comb to several friends who have used it during their own labors. It's like the sisterhood of the traveling comb. So, you know, but it, this worked well for me. It's not for everybody. And when you say uh, nitrous or nitrous, is that the, the gas therapy we kind of stereotypically see a pregnant woman with a, a mask inhaling a gas? Yes. And when you mention hydrotherapy, would that mean anything water related? So pool, shower? Yes, primarily in the US, the birthing suites here, if, you, if you're at a facility that, that offers it, you would be offered um, almost universally, if you have a private room, you'll have a shower. Showers are great. You can just kind of point it at your back. You can stand there. It is awesome. Um, but many facilities increasingly are installing tubs. So you can actually sit in the tub and kick back and relax. You know, there are things you can't do in the tub, like the TENS machine, but, um, you know, when throw on some Sade and light some candles, like go for it. So going back to doulas now, I know you had a doula and you found that of great benefit. I have a doula ready for my big event in January and she is wonderful. Shout out to Jodie Simon in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now I love that you said a doula takes care of you from the waist up and, and your doctors will take care of you from the waist down. But I wondered if somebody is interested in, in getting a doula, having a doula with them on the day or on the event, um, how would they go about choosing one that's the right match for them? Yeah, so I think again, this takes a little bit of self-reflection to think about you know, what are your general preferences? What are things that you know that you want and what are things you really know that you don't? Um, so, you know, thinking hard about what you want your birth experience to be, how you want your partner or whoever is supporting you at birth to be involved. 
Um, and then any limitations at your facility, obviously COVID has made it a little harder for people to have breast supporters, but I actually want to step back because even outside of my experience, which was very good, um, research bears out that having a doula at your birth means that you will have less interventions and less pain management. Um, the, the research supports that doulas are an absolutely, and this is many, many clinical studies um, that have been published in all kinds of different places around the world. We know that having continuous support from someone who is just there to support you is absolutely going to improve your experience. But let's just be clear about what doulas are and what they are not. So I, I told you the waist down thing. Doulas are not there to make medical decisions for you. They are not trained physicians. Um, the vast majority of the time, they are not trained nurses. Um, they are there to support you emotionally, most of the time when you have someone who is experienced, they will be able to coach you through and tell you, this is probably what they're going to do next. Here's why. Would you like to talk about this more? Um, but it is not their job to make decisions for you or to tell you what to do. That is a decision that you need to make with your provider, but they can provide really, really, really good insights. Um, so if you're looking for a doula, and I always suggest that you interview a few, you know, step one, decide what you want, decide what's important to you, make some notes, talk to your partner, all of that. And then um, Dona International is the biggest certifying um, agency for doulas. So you can search on their site. I think that probably the best way to be honest with you is to find a friend who had a good experience and ask for a referral. That's most of the time, it, it, it's certainly in places like New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles where, you know, that's how you generally find them is, is, is referrals, but, you know, natural resources in San Francisco maintains a, a great database of, of, um, doulas if you're looking, but, um, one other thing on doulas though, you should absolutely tell your provider, your OB or midwife that you have one and you should ask if they are okay with that. So a lot of people don't know this, but, um, many OBs participate in cohort based care now which means that the person who has taken care of you through your prenatal appointments may not be the person who is there at birth, um, which sounds really crazy when you first hear it because you're like, wait, this person has been with me for all these appointments and my ultrasounds and this, but we don't have a call model in most areas anymore. So if that's something that's really important to you, you should talk to them about it. But it is important just like, you know, the same way you wouldn't take like a whole you know, diffuser set up into a hospital without asking first, you should tell your provider that you plan to have a doula. Good tip. And going back to the hospital setting, one of the things that surprised me in the book uh, was where you said that regarding epidurals, women over 40 are least likely to get one, but those under 20 are most likely. Why do you think that might be? Be honest with you, I really don't know. Um, I think that there is some amount of just self-acknowledgement and preparedness that women over 40 go into it with. I think that if you're giving birth over 40, odds are it's something that you really want. It might have been a difficult journey to get there. Um, but we really just don't know. It's just an interesting data point. And on unmedicated pain relief options, you mentioned hydrotherapy, the yoga ball, those big kind of birth balls. I've got one of those ready. Um, do they help with kind of relieving pain when you're bouncing around on them? You know, some of it's to do with like baby positioning and just staying in motion. So one of the, you know, one of the kind of less advantageous parts of getting an epidural is that once you have it, you are in bed. 
So if you would like to have an active labor, and when I say active labor, what I mean is if you would like to go in the tub, if you would like to bounce on the yoga ball, if you would like to, you know, just walk around and kind of, if that's how you best process pain and all of that, you probably should just hold out on getting an epidural um, because you will not be able to do that. You will be sitting. And can you just cover for us briefly the uh, points about acupuncture and hypnobirthing as well that you mentioned in the book? Yeah, so hypnobirthing and I think meditation is kind of a very similar, um, you know, and I think it's again, like whatever works best for you. Um, there is no right way to do it. So, you know, hypnobirthing teaches you techniques to calm your mind and to work through contractions and to breathe through contractions. Um, acupuncture is, um, you know, in my opinion, a really phenomenal tool, um, you know, certainly kind of in the months leading up to birth. And then also, um, you know, afterwards, I think it's a really powerful tool in the postpartum period as well. Um, and, and so a lot of people are haters about acupuncture. I get feedback about this all the time. People say, your, your book is, you know, there are so many pages of medical citations from JAMA, but like, how can you talk about acupuncture as if it's real? It's not real, it's fake. It's not fake. There have been a lot of clinical studies actually that show that it can help with pain management. It's recommended oftentimes with assisted reproduction. Um, but one of the best benefits of acupuncture actually is that it reduces your cortisol levels. So um, yeah, it's a really fascinating thing um, that uh, people just don't wanna hear it because it's not Western medicine, but the reality is it has been part of Western medicine for a long time and there is plenty of good evidence that it works. Um, acupuncture typically is not offered in hospitals. Some nurses actually do it and know how to do it. Um, I know that some places in the UK, there are some hospitals uh, that are part of the NHS actually that offer it. And I guess it comes back to the point you previously made, you know, different things work for different people, whatever works for you. Yes. Um, please yes. tell us about your special mantra. <laughs> okay, so I have to admit, you know, I was writing this book and I've worked in health for a long time. I have uh, had, you know, health experiences, but I was really terrified of tearing. Um, and so I remember that our doula came to the house and, you know, that's part of the doula's job is to kind of get in your head and help you work through like whatever your anxiety is and whatever you're kind of dreading and fearing. And I said, gosh, Malia, like, I'm just really afraid. I'm going to tear and it's going to hurt. And then what if things are never the same down there? And I don't know what I'm going to do. And she says, well, you know, I remember when I, and she now has four children, actually she has five, she has five children with four of whom she gave birth to at home. Um, she's been a dual, she's done hundreds of births. Um, <clears throat> and she said, yeah, you know, I was really scared the first time too. Um, but I'm a big mantra person. So I want you to just, you know, close your eyes and, you know, just kind of breathe. And I want you to imagine your vagina just opening up. Your vagina is the size of the universe. And I want you to just say to yourself, my vagina is huge. And that is what I thought to myself the entire time I was in labor. And it really helped. Um, and when you see the pictures of what 10 centimeters of dilation looks like, and you realize it's what your body was made to do, um, and that there are ways to avoid tearing, pelvic floor exercises, you know, hot comp perineal um, 
hot pads. There are all kinds of ways that you can really um, help. It really helped me, but yeah, my vagina is huge. Fantastic. I love that. I might use it too. I might. <laughs> so many people use it. I love it. I love hearing from readers that they were like, wait a second, I was terrified. And now I just imagine my vagina being like the size of the universe and it's brilliant. <sighs> okay. <laughs> that, that is great. Um, but now I want to talk to you about things when they unfold in an unpredictable way, which they did for both of your children. Anyone who's read Bumpin' will know you had a difficult experience when having TJ, you mentioned. And I know you had another unexpected string of events when Dylan was born. Would you tell us a little bit about those experiences and how you held it together when things weren't going the way you wanted? Well, I, yeah, I had two really difficult births. And actually I found out um, after Dylan was born that I can't have more children um, because my uterus is, um, I almost had to have a hysterectomy actually with this birth um, because my uterus wouldn't contract. So, you know, with TJ the first time around, um, I was very kind of idealistic and even me foolishly reading as I did, writing as I did, I thought I'm so prepared. I know what can happen. And there was always a little voice in the back of my head that said, you know what, you're not in control here. You've got to just kind of be okay with it. Um, but yeah, you know, I ended up, I, I did not go into labor on my own with TJ. Um, I had to be induced, um, you know, from the time my water broke to the time he was pulled out. It was about 65 hours. I was in unmedicated back labor for about 12 hours of that, I think. It was like the worst pain I've ever been in in my life. And I, you know, immediately all of the things like just kind of flew out the window. I did what I could. Um, but then at some point, you know, one of the really cool things for me that I look back on, I went into the birth experience and I did not get an epidural right away. I signed the paperwork because I said, you know what, I don't want to have to mess around with this later if, if it's necessary. Um, but I did... I, I breathed through it. I did all of the things that I could, but then because you can feel everything, and I do mean everything, um, during that stage of labor, I felt him get stuck. I mean, I felt him making progress, moving down the birth canal. And then all of a sudden I was in the bathtub actually. And I was like, uh-oh, I feel things grinding to a halt. And so I looked at the clock and I said, I'm going to give it an hour. If I don't feel him kind of making some progress here, I'm going to get an epidural just to see if it'll help things loosen up. Because, you know, at that point I kind of knew, but I kind of knew at that point, I don't think he's going to come out on his own. And so, you know, we waited another about like 12 or 14 hours. I got the epidural. It was like, I can't even believe how good that pain relief was, um, you know, being an induced back labor is really painful. Uh, I just didn't have any breaks between contractions. But, um, you know, when it came time to make the call about the C-section, I had kind of just said, like, all that matters to me is that both of us are well, like both of us need to be healthy. Um, and so I had the C-section and it was not what I wanted. Like, of course, it was not what I wanted. I had dreams of this beautiful vaginal birth and I didn't get it. Um, and then with Dylan, you know, so I was not a good candidate for a VBAC for a whole host of reasons. I talked to probably 20 different providers about it. Um, and my OB team was like, no, it's not a thing for you. I'm so sorry. Like, it's just not going to work. And I said, okay, you know, I said, if you really want to try, we're, 
we're not really in favor of it, but it's it's probably not going to end the way that you want it to. And it didn't in the end matter anyway, because at 38 weeks, I found out I had preeclampsia and I had help. And so I went in for my NST appointment at 38 weeks and they said, you know, your blood pressure is a little weird. We're going to run some labs. And they called me two hours later and said, you're coming back to the hospital right now. Um, your labs are really not good. And so you're, they said, you know, you're having a baby. And so we had to figure out what to do with our toddler, <laughs> like within, cause they were like, you need to come back right now. Like not in two hours, not in five days. Like you have to come back now. Um, your labs are really bad. So um, we had to just kind of sort it out, you know, bring TJ in. And I think it was three hours after those labs were taken, uh, Dylan was out. And Dylan and I, and I, I had a C-section, um, but it took him about two hours for that C-section. So it was, um, yeah, it, it was not, none of it was what I wanted. And, you know, the, the kind of day after that was pretty rough. You know, we were separated for a while. He was really small. He was like five pounds, seven ounces. I had to stay surgery ready because my uterus was not cooperating. And so um, all of that also, you know, I had a really hard time with breastfeeding the first time as well. Um, I did everything. I had all the support. I did all the things. I drank the teas. I did the, you know, all of the, all of the stuff. But this time my milk just never came in, I think, because I had such a traumatic birth again. And so, you know, I made it like four and a half, five weeks. And that was that. But he's doing great. He's doing great now. Both of my kids are so healthy and great. They both got breast milk for as long as I could give it to them. And now I'll give a plug to Bobby. I think Bobby formula is like the tits. It's the best. Um, Dylan has done so well on it. It's been absolutely fabulous. And so, you know, for anyone who's struggling with feeding a baby or confronts that reality, like I am living proof that you can do everything, know everything, have all of the access in the world. And like stuff just does not always go the way you want. So there you go. Even my breastfeeding preferences just did my best and I have no regrets and I had to confront that and I had to live with that. I got therapy after my um, miscarriages. I think it's such a powerful tool, but I also made it a goal to just be really honest with everyone in my life about how I was doing, especially this time. Um, and being told you can't have any more children was a really, I was kind of done anyway, but that was hard. That was really hard. And looking back now, I mean, knowing what you know now, I mean, you already knew pretty much everything there was to know. Is there anything that you didn't prepare for with either TJ or Dylan that you wish you had prepared for? I mean, I, I think the news about my, my crappy, crappy uterus was probably the thing I just didn't even contemplate was possible. Um, you know, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't think that that would happen. Um, and luckily for me, I had an amazing team who saved my uterus, which is great, even though I don't plan on using it again. Um, but I think that, you know, even this time, I kind of went into the breastfeeding thing and said, like, well, I'm, I'm going to just nail it this time. It's going to be great. Um, and then it just didn't. And it was such a reminder that in the same way that, you know, you can you have some control over of, of your kids. Um, but in the end, um, you know, you just... Uh, your kids are who they are. So it's, um, yeah, you only have so much control. Leslie, thank you for sharing that with us. That is such a moving story, but I mean, both of those, and you've come through those and um, 
I know that you had two C-sections with and that with Dylan you said you were induced. With TJ, did you begin that labour process um, in the way that you imagined? I know you were in 10 hours of back labour, but did you did you suddenly feel it come on or how, how does somebody know when they're about to give birth? Well, um, so this is another reason it's really handy to have a doula because a lot of people think that they're in very, very active labor and they're not. Um, so, you know, one thing that, uh, that is really useful is this uh, yet another mantra, um, longer, stronger, closer together. So that is how, you know, the difference between, um, Braxton Hicks contractions or practice contractions, or, you know, just all of the kind of pre real labor contractions. So I don't know. Have you had any Braxton Hicks yet? I don't think so, but I'm not too sure I would know how to spot them or would I? So Yes. You, you will know when they happen. It basically feels like your, your stomach tightens. Um, so it's really an interesting, um, it's really an interesting process, but um, you know, Braxton Hicks happen, how, you're how many weeks right now? 25. Okay, so you've got a little ways to go before these start happening and good because they're not the best. Um, basically when you start having the Braxton Hicks contractions, um, you can move around a little bit and they generally stop or you can like drink some water and they'll generally stop um, real labor contractions. It doesn't matter how much you move around. They will just continue to build and continue to build and continue to build until they're quite close together. So you can kind of look at it as like a wave. Right. So, you know, at first the wave is kind of like this and then it goes up real labor contractions, you know, you have a couple minutes between, but not, not terribly long. So there are labor, you know, contraction timers. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it's, it's longer, stronger, closer together. That's what you want to remember. So once you start real contractions and Braxton Hicks, would you call those kind of practice con contractions in the weeks yeah. running up? Running up. Okay. That's right. Yes. So once you start having the real contractions, you're, you're timing them. I know there are apps available. And at what point do you call your doula or the hospital? Or do you just go to the hospital? Don't just go to the hospital because they'll send you home. Um, so in those final weeks, odds are your practitioner is going to be monitoring your cervix and they're going to be, you know, doing a little bit of monitoring of the baby. If, if you're um, a high-risk pregnancy like I was, you'll go in for NST, um, non-stress testing um, once a week in those final weeks. Um, if you're not in that age cohort or, you know, um, cohort in general, uh, it, you won't have to go in as frequently. So, um, but no, you do not want to just run to the hospital the minute your contractions start. I would call your doula. So your doula and every doula is a little bit different, but this is exactly why you have them on your team, on your care team. Because if you call them and you say, you know, my, my water broke. So it's not just contractions that tell you that you're going into labor. That's another thing that people don't always um, understand because I think the media has really distorted how we uh, look at this process, which is that, um, you know, there are other things, the bloody show, for example, you know, you'll have a little bit of bleeding right before labor, um, losing your mucus plug, which is the, you know, plug that kind of seals up your cervix, right? And that indicates your cervix is dilating and effacing, um, mostly just dilating. But 
Um, but you kind of look for multiple signs and then your water breaks. That's the one that everyone knows, right? But it's not gonna like happen in the produce aisle where, you know, it's like dramatic and you drop your apples and like, oh God, it's this flood. Like for lots of people, it just happens while they're sleeping. Um, it happens while they're sleeping or it's a trickle. It doesn't really feel that dramatic, but um, like for me, it happened in the middle of the night. So, um, and I was like, did I just pee on my pregnancy pillow? Oh, no, that's what that was. Um, so anyway. So call your doula, but don't go immediately to hospital. No, not unless. Yes. So the reasons to go to the hospital immediately would be if you have any discharge that is a different color, like green or brown or red. Anytime you ever see a lot of bleeding, you just go. You don't you don't stop past go. You just go. Um, you, you want to just, you know, and your doula again, or your provider will give you some of these instructions, but really what you want is, you know, multiple signs, you know, your water breaks, you lose your mucus plug, you have bloody show, those things are happening. And also you are having contractions that are close enough together. They're getting longer and stronger and closer together such that you can feel the intensity growing. Sometimes like that can happen for a little while and then they stop too. Um, so, you know, and everybody's labor is very different. This is another thing that I would just say that you can't compare to what happened to your sister or your friend or, you know, anyone else. Like you, what's happening in your body is what's happening in your body. So don't, don't compare yourself to anyone else. And I guess regardless of, you know, what we say about when to go to hospital, everybody should speak to their own doctors about their own situations and the plan for when it happens, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, my goal with my goal with bumping really was to give people the basics. Like what does labor pain actually feel like? Because no one really talks about that. And also you don't really remember it later anyway. So it's <laughs> thank goodness. Um, but yeah, it is a conversation that should happen between you and yourself, you and your partner, you and your practitioner, whether it's an OB or a midwife, and you and your doula. And finally, because I know we're up on time, um, if you could name just one, what do you think turned out to be the most helpful thing that you did in your preparation for either or both of your son's births? I think that for me, and this is a personal thing again, but I do think that the research also bears this out. I so I had placenta previa in this last pregnancy. So I was not able to really do the same kind of physical activity I enjoy. You know, activity for me is like mental health. Um, I like, you know, I did CrossFit in my first pregnancy. I was like chucking heavy stuff because I went into that pregnancy doing it and um, it was really good for me. I went to like 41 and a half weeks with, with TJ. So I really needed that help. I was like, oh my God, get out of here. <laughs> like it's time to get out buddy. Um, but I would say like ensuring that the thing that gives you like peace and escape and that makes you feel calm and happy. Um, and I think taking a walk is like a great example of this for a lot of people, even if all you're doing is taking a walk, it's enough, just maintaining some basic level of activity, getting outside, um, doing what you can do, not trying to push hard. You're not about like training for a marathon here but doing some basic level of activity. And this is, goes for after birth too. When you're physically able to do it, whether you have a C-section or a vaginal birth, 
getting outside, getting outside and just taking a walk around the block because that fresh air, especially in those like first six newborn weeks that are a whole thing, just some fresh air does a lot. So I'm, I'm a big fan of just, you know, for me, like exercises is mental health, but I think for everybody, just walking around, taking a walk, getting some fresh air, getting out of the house um, from pre-birth to postpartum is, is a really good thing. Oh, Leslie, thank you so much. It has been wonderful speaking to you. And um, I want everybody watching and listening to know this is Leslie's book, Bumpin. And I will post links to Leslie's uh, social media and website in the summary that goes with this video or podcast. Leslie, thank you so much. Oh, well, it's been such a pleasure and I'm so excited for you and I'm here if you need anything. Thank you. And thanks for watching and listening, everybody. Bye-bye.